Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. This is our last episode of Problematic Women for 2020. Wow, that's insane. And while I know that everybody loves to hate 2020, I was taking some time today just to think back over the year. And despite it all, there have definitely been some good things to 2020. And I was thinking back on my favorite moments from Problematic Women over this past year. Lauren, do you have a favorite interview or a favorite segment from 2020 that we've done? Hmm. That's a good question, Virginia. I think my favorite probably used to be when my mom came on the show. You know, we talked about quarantining together. I mean, it seems like a whole lifetime ago, but yeah, that was really special. That was special. And we learned that crazy story about you, like getting that petition going at your school. So you could go to, it was like a school dance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed learning that about you, Lauren. That was great. <laughs> What's your favorite? Yeah, so I, I think one of my favorite interviews was definitely the one that we did with Abigail Schreier, author of the book Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Um, that was July 30th episode. Uh, and that was just such a, a powerful interview. Abigail Schreier is incredible. And just the amount of backlash that she has faced for speaking the truth is really really wild uh, and just so, so cool to get to talk to her and just ask honest questions about, okay, what exactly is, is going on with, within the transgender movement and why are so many young people being drawn into this? That was definitely a highlight interview for me. Um, but then on a lighter note, <laughs> I've also enjoyed the two different kind of funny segments that we've done on dating this year both the one with Philip Reynolds and then the one we just did last week with Dr. Kevin Pham. That was just fun to, you know, talk about something yep. that is, is so crazy and so wild. Yeah. That was this awesome. year. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I, all the time, I'm always like, have you ever heard of Abigail Schreier? Have you read her book? <laughs> it's just like, it's, nobody knows about the problem of, yeah. of this rapid onset gender dysphoria. And it's so important. So, uh, you know, I agree. I think that's probably, one of my favorite interviews to Virginia. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to that interview, go back and listen. We will link it in the show notes for this episode. All right. We have a great final show planned for 2020. Lauren, what do we have queued up for today? Upon today's Problematic Women, 2020 has been a strange year for all of us, but especially for Shelby Talcott, reporter for The Daily Caller. Shelby spent much of her year traveling from city to city and reporting on the race, riots, and protests. Today, Shelby shares what it was like to be often in the center of the conflict as businesses were being burned and looted. Plus, Virginia and I discussed the Lifetime Christmas movie, Feliz Navidad, with A.C. Slater, Mario Lopez, and why we all love to watch Hallmark and Lifetime movies, despite them being so cheesy and predictable. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. 
Well, it has been a crazy year for everyone, but I think it has been especially wild for one reporter, Shelby Talcott, who is the Daily Caller's field correspondent and media reporter, and she joins us now to share about her experiences during 2020. Shelby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So 2020 has been marked by violent riots and protests following the death of George Floyd. And you have actually spent most of the year traveling from city to city all over America, from Kenosha to Portland to DC. You've been reporting on these violent riots. So if you could summarize your year in one word, what would that word be? Uh, I mean, that's a good question, I guess insanity. (laughs) We're in a global pandemic. There's been, as you said, protests and riots around the country. So, and, and again, the pandemic just sort of adds to an already insane year. So, uh, you know, insanity is probably the perfect word to describe it. Yeah. And how exactly did you become one of the, the key reporters at the Daily Caller who was going around in the middle of the violence, reporting on these riots and protests. Have you always been a field correspondent? No, I started the Daily Caller on the News Foundation side as a fellow. Um, And then at the end of last year, I switched over to the for-profit side to be their media reporter. Um, And as these protests and riots sort of began, I essentially just went up to my boss, Jeff Ingersoll, and said, I want to be out there. Um, and yeah, he said, sure, go ahead. That's, that's really bold to kind of be the one like raising your hand, volunteering, like I'll go. I feel like not, not many people. Uh, I mean, obviously you have that, that curiosity as a journalist, but, uh, it, it's a little scary, isn't it? To be kind of putting yourself willingly often in positions that feel somewhat dangerous. Yeah, it definitely can be scary, and you constantly have to be alert. You always have to be watching your back and and sort of knowing what's going on around you, but I think that was also part of what drew me to it. Um, you know, I, I played professional tennis before this, and I um, sort of, when I played professional tennis, I traveled a lot. I was in these crazy places as well. So that was sort of my adrenaline a little bit. And, and now this has become obviously a different sort of adrenaline, but, you know, the, the same thing. And I really do like being out on the ground and, and providing live coverage and bringing, really bringing Americans the coverage that nobody else is bringing them because, because it's true, you know, the, the legacy outlets and, and these traditional media publications are not covering this and they haven't been all year. Well, I'm personally so thankful for your coverage, Shelby. I know multiple times throughout the year, I would hear like, oh, there, there's a riot going on in this city. And I would just get on Twitter and be like, I'm sure Shelby's there. What's she reporting? And sure enough, like every time you're like, oh, good. Like here's five videos. Shelby's on the ground. She's filming. I can see what's actually happening. I can get the firsthand coverage. So I've been so thankful for people like yourself that, you know, you're, you're cutting through the media bias and you're just telling directly, this is what is happening. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And of course, you know, our, our, my teammates, um, Rich McGinnis and Jorge Ventura, we've, he, they've been out there too, and they've been doing a great job. I'm sure you've seen um, their coverage as well. And there's a few other good, uh, really good independent reporters who are doing great work. And 
and but it's largely the independent reporters and the small publications that are that are doing all of this and have been all year as you know as I'm sure you know yeah yeah Shelby take us back to the first riot that you attended what what was that tell us the situation what was your reaction what were your thoughts at that very first one that you went to the first one I went to was actually right after George Floyd died and it was in DC so there were thousands of people and I think this was on a it was either Friday and a Saturday or Saturday and a Sunday but it was like one of the first weekends after Floyd's death and we didn't know what to expect right like it's Washington DC you don't expect especially when this is your first time going out there like that I would need a gas mask and like a helmet um but sure enough it's like just this chaos started happening I mean protesters were people were throwing um firecrackers at police police were tear gassing people um, people were running up and throwing the tear gas back at the police officers. There were rubber bullets going off everywhere. It, I mean, it was, and then the, the looting started. And so that's that weekend in DC, if you remember, um, uh, towards the, be- closer to, towards the beginning of the year where there was just mass looting. And I sort of went around the city all night watching people break into stores and it was, it was just it was like there were there was no laws, you know what I mean? And and even though there were police officers there, the amount of looting and rioting going on was just overwhelming. They couldn't, you know, the police officers couldn't go to every single store and stop people from looting. It was it was madness. What was running through your head that night? Uh I don't even know if I was really thinking about what was going on in the moment, right? In situations like this, a lot of times I feel like especially when you're, you know, new at it, you're just like, what the hell? What, like, what is going on? And I feel like that was sort of my reaction all night. Like everywhere I looked, there was something insane happening that you don't see when you're walking down the streets normally. And and this has, you know, it's become the new normal this year. Um, so I, I don't even know if I had any specific thoughts. I just was like shocked at the behavior of people. Did you think on that first night, like, oh, I can see that this is going to become a much larger situation where we're going to see this in other cities? Or were you thinking of this as this is an isolated event of of violence and of, of riots that, you know, we probably won't see this in dozens of other cities across the country? Well, it had, uh, we had seen some rioting in other cities at that point, but it was still so early on that I really thought, uh, okay, this, you know, maybe this is just like an extreme emotional reaction from people perhaps, and it's going to quiet down. I certainly didn't think that it was going to continue until nearly 2021 now. Um, So I really didn't think it would be as long-winded as it has been. I didn't think I would be jetting off in a global pandemic um, all across the country to cover all of these riots. Um, How many have you covered by now? I don't even know the number, but I've been to New York City, uh, Minneapolis, we've been to Portland, we've been to Seattle, we've been obviously to Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, um, I, so we've been 
coast to coast pretty much. Yeah. Been around. Wow. When, now that, you know, you've kind of been in these situations so many times, are there certain cues or signs that, that you look for in a crowd um, to kind of know like, okay, if I see that, I know that things are maybe about to get violent or about to get more heated or intense. Yeah, for sure. So it depends on um, where you are, really. So for example, anytime we've seen this in multiple cities, so we saw it in Kenosha, we saw it in Portland when they when they erect a sort of wall around the, you know, around a federal building. Um, that always really angers the protesters and rioters. And so as soon as in those situations, the, the people start sort of banging against the the um, barriers and, and escalating, I know, okay, it's probably time to put my gas mask on and, and get ready because that's when the police will come out and, you know, react. Uh, and then in terms of when, when people are marching, when it starts getting dark, so I've seen this, this is sort of when the looting happens, um, they'll start with small things like banging on, you know, stop signs or um, breaking breaking some small stuff or, you know, just sort of breaking windows. And that's when you have a good indication like this could really escalate very quickly. And sometimes it doesn't, but as we've seen, um, sometimes it does. And so there's small cues of sort of, you just have to read the crowd and, and it's almost like you're figuring out their anger levels. Um, and that's a good indication of when things might escalate. So then as you're watching that and you're watching, okay, the crowd is doing this and this, how are you balancing, I'm a reporter, I'm here to capture this, I want to capture this, also, I don't want to get hurt myself? I don't know if I do that the best. I don't know if anyone on my team does that the best. Um, you know, Richie in, um, in Kenosha was right behind the first victim in the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. So uh, it's definitely something we could work on. But um, my first thought is always, how can I get the best footage? But there is definitely a, a part of me that's like, all right, you know, if a situation is getting too out of hand, I'll maybe back up. And I think I learned a little bit more about that when I got arrested in Louisville. Um, can, can you tell us about that story? Because I, I was going to ask you about that next. I know you kind of got caught in the crosshairs. What what exactly happened in that situation? Yeah, so I essentially I was reporting and um, it was a past curfew, but the journalists are exempt from the curfew. You know, if if we're not, who's who's going to record and who's going to tell people what's going on? Because these situations almost always happen after a curfew, if there's curfew in the city. So I uh, returned towards the main protest area, and there was sort of like a scattering group of protesters. Um, and I didn't hear anything from police, and neither did my coworker, Jorge, who got, who got arrested as well. But essentially, we followed the protesters, because, you know, we're reporting on the protesters at that point. Um, and as the protesters looked like they were going to start kind of dispersing, police came from all four sides and did a kettle, which is when they essentially don't let you leave. Um, and they had us all get on the ground. They arrested us. Um, we went through processing and we were, ended, I ended up being in jail for 16 hours and I was in a jail cell with, I think it was 27 other 
you know, a 27 protesters, which was, um, it was eye opening, honestly. I mean, it was, it should have never happened. And, you know, journalists should never be arrested. But on the flip side, it was definitely a learning experience for me. Um, and really highlighted that there, there are issues with police, you know, I don't think anyone is saying that police are perfect or that the system's perfect. Um, should they be completely defunded and abolished? I don't think that's the answer, but um, could they could they be improved? For sure, absolutely. Uh, and, and so I actually um, became friendly with one or two of the protesters in there and they're the, the two girls that I that I got friendly with turns out they're like hardcore activists and they travel all over the place so they do this for a living so I got to hear you know stories from them about you know where they've been and what they've been doing and it was interesting because we uh, at the Daily Caller oftentimes you know these people won't talk to us and and so it was it was an interesting experience for sure I wouldn't I wouldn't do it again but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is wild to in some ways think, okay, it, it took me sitting in a jail, jail cell, being arrested, getting put in jail to actually have a real and honest conversation with some of these individuals who are violently rioting because, uh, yeah, they're, they're not willing to, to talk with you on, on another kind of playing field, so to speak. Um, so what, I mean, what was going through your head as, as you're being arrested, as you're sitting in jail? How were you kind of processing that whole situation? I was really frustrated and I didn't understand um, how they could arrest someone. You know, the Daily Caller had verified to the police department that we were reporters and they were arresting reporters. Uh, one of the police officers actually walked up to Jorge and said, we know that you guys are, you know, legitimate members of the press, but you're going to get arrested and charged anyway. Um, and so I was just angry and luckily they arrested so many people that night that they couldn't put us all into individual jail cells. So we ended up being in a holding cell, which meant that there was a phone. So the phone, uh, you had a five minute limit and then it would just hang up. But I was able to, I, I only have my parents' numbers memorized because, you know, it's 2020. <laughs> so literally for 16 hours, I bugged my dad and he was sort of the middleman between me and, and people at the collar. Um, but it, it was frustrating. I mean, it was gross. It was cramped. Not everyone was wearing masks. They were letting people out who had told me that they had criminal records before me, which I thought was crazy too. Um, it was really frustrating. It was, it was a, it was a frustrating night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is really frustrating. You, you mentioned this a little bit, but how do you feel like your perspective on the police and law enforcement has maybe changed over the past six or seven months as you have really seen both sides, as you've been in the thick of it and been all over the country to these violent protests? I think there's definitely, and I, and I think I've always thought this, but perhaps it's um, become more clear to me this year. Uh, there are definitely police officers who should not be police officers. There are definitely police officers who are out there who can't handle or don't know how to handle these intense, like this, these 
crazy situations. I mean, we were in Wauwatosa, which is like this, you know, tiny town. Those police officers, I looked on their website and their most asked questions are literally like, uh, what do I do if my pet runs away? Or, you know, what do I do with my expired medication? Like these officers are not trained to handle these situations. And therefore, a lot of times they end up abusing their power, you know? And, and so I do think that there is an argument to be made that police officers could be trained better and they, you know, there could be a better, tougher process for becoming a police officer. I don't know what the answers are, but, you know, these are suggestions that I think, how can that hurt? Nobody, you know, again, I don't agree with, you know, defund the police. And, you know, if I, if I'm, if somebody's at my house and I feel threatened, I'm not going to want to call a social worker. I'm sorry. Like, you know what I mean? I'm going to want, I'm going to want the police there, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that the police are this, you know, invincible structure that can't be improved. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's been such a, a key argument through all of this is like, okay, yes, there are areas that need to be improved, but like you say, if I'm in a moment where, you know, I need help right now, I want to know without a shadow of a doubt, I can pick up the phone, I can call 911 and an officer will be there and he'll be there quickly because they're staffed well enough for that. Um, so, so critical. Uh, Shelby, I do want to pivot just for a minute and ask you about your perspective as a member of the media. You've, you've been in the thick of it. How have you thought that the mainstream media has covered these riots over the past six or seven months? What's your perspective? I think overall, the legacy outlets have done a really poor job of covering it. And, you know, this isn't me just saying this. If you look, this is backed up by just like, I feel like this is a factual statement at this point. I mean, you had CNN, uh, you had a CNN reporter on air saying, you know, I want to make sure that you guys know this. This is you know, mostly peaceful protest, and there's literally fires burning behind him. Um, when we were in Kenosha, there was another CNN reporter, and the Chiron said, I think it was fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. Uh, again, fires behind him. Like, that. that's not a thing. I'm sorry. Um, and so these liberal legacy outlets have gone to the other extreme of sort of downplaying every single protest and riot until it was interesting because that happened until they figured out that it was hurting Joe Biden and it was hurting the Democratic Party. And at that point, you saw a few people in the media sort of stand up and be like, okay, you know, Joe Biden needs to condemn these, you know, but it's interesting because that, that was when it shifted. Mm. And it's so clear to me that there is an agenda there that's not just, hey, let me get the news out to the American public and let them decide, right? I think that's the great thing about going on the ground and being able to record videos is I'm literally just like giving you the videos. The American people are intelligent. You know, you can just, you can figure out what's going on based on these videos. And instead we have the legacy outlets just sort of twisting things. We've talked about that a lot this year at the Daily Signal, that it's been really discouraging that, you know, over the past several years, we've seen this shift in mainstream media from being very focused on, um, you know, trying to report the facts to now it feels very much more so 
like there's just a, a narrative that they're trying to push and they'll sort of mold the facts to fit the narrative. And it, it is discouraging, um, but certainly thankful for people like yourself who are on the ground and your goal is to tell the truth and just the facts. Um, and within that, you know, we've been hearing a lot all year about Black Lives Matter, about Antifa. What role did you see Black Lives Matter um, specifically, and then, then let's switch and talk about Antifa, but first Black Lives Matter, what role did you see them play at these riots and protests? So BLM is definitely way more organized than Antifa. You know, Antifa even pushes back on the idea that they're an organization. They say that they're just, you know, an ideology, which which I would argue is not true, but another story. Uh, so I would say for the, that for the most part, BLM, the majority of the BLM people did try to keep the protests relatively peaceful. Um, and the trouble came in when these people who, you know, you could characterize as Antifa because they weren't there shouting, you know, Black Lives Matter. They weren't there, it didn't seem like, for a cause. I mean, when when the looting started, it, it almost seemed like in multiple of these situations that there were people just taking advantage of the protests. Um, we were in Pennsylvania and there was mass rioting and looting on the other side of the city. And there was a pretty calm, peaceful protest going on at the city core, right? So the, these BLM people were at the city core protesting. And while they were protesting and the police were there trying to handle that, a bunch of other individuals who didn't seem to have anything to do with BLM started looting and rioting, you know? So I do think there's there's an argument to be made that in some cases, it, there's just a bunch of opportunistic people using this. Um, but certainly there's the other side of it where, you know, in Portland and Seattle, there are a lot of Antifa members. I mean, in Portland, there was rioting every night almost throughout this year. Um, and, you know, these aren't people who care about a cause other than to just start a massive mess, essentially. Like, they, they don't, they're not pushing any sort of particular agenda, in my opinion, from what I've seen. Um, and there's certainly BLM people who have rioted, I'm not saying that. But for the most part, I would put it a little bit more on um, Antifa and then you know, opportunistic individuals who are using these protests as a, as a means to just sow discord. And are there certain tells that you can pick out, like, okay, yes, that group over there, those are definitely Antifa people. Like, are there certain things that you look for or certain identifiers where you know that individual is associated with or kind of a member of Antifa? That's really difficult, and it's that's part of the reason why I try not to characterize them as Antifa. If, you know, in, in my on my Twitter feed when I'm posting these videos, because it is really difficult because it's not you know a solid organization. A good cue used to be at least if you're wearing all black, but now they tell all protesters to wear all black, so it's difficult, right? Um, there is an Antifa flag. Uh, there's like Antifa symbols. So that's a good cue. Um, and then the really organized people, there's always sort of 
there's a sort of a group that is like ready with shields and they're, you know, coordinated. And I would say that is a good sign that it's, they're, you know, Antifa affiliated. Um, but, but it is difficult because at this point, like everyone's wearing black, everyone's covering their faces. And so it, it's hard to signal out for sure. Hey, okay. This person's Antifa, this person's BLM, this person's just, you know, a protester. So it's, you know, it is difficult. Yeah. But there are some key signs. So obviously you have uh, experienced what really few of us have this year. You've, you've seen the inside of these riots, of the looting, of the demonstrations. If there is something that you want Americans to know, or you know, if you could kind of say one thing to the American people, what would that be? It's time to look at other sources of media. I think this year has made it abundantly clear that these legacy outlets are not there to give you the straight news. Uh, and uh, the American people are intelligent enough to figure out what's going on themselves. And I think that this year has shown us in many ways, not just these protests and riots, that there is a new source of media coming and a new source of media that that is really taking a stand and providing legitimate news coverage. And, and that's, that's what the American people need to be listening to, um, to get a better understanding of what's actually going on in the country. Yeah. If you had to give the mainstream media a, a grade or a rating for 2020, um, what, what grade would you give them? Ooh, not, not a failing grade. They, they would for sure get a failing grade. Yeah. I mean, it's not even just with the protests and riots. There's been so many other news stories that they're downplaying, underplaying, not reporting at all because it doesn't fit their agenda. And that's not, you know, that's not being a journalist. A journalist is, you know, reporting the news, whether or not it's something you believe in. I mean, I've reported things that I might not believe in personally, but that's, it's not my job to insert my personal opinion into news stories or into the coverage. Well, Shelby, before we let you go, there's one question that we love to ask all of our guests on this show. We get so many different answers, uh, but that is, do you consider yourself to be a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? I do. I do. Um, because I wouldn't say I'm like, a, you know, feel like I'm a moderate feminist. Um, but, but I think that, you know, females can do whatever they want and you don't need, I'm a big believer, you know, I don't think you need a man to, to be successful. I think I can, I'm very much independent. I can do what I want. I've made my own success this far and I hope that I can continue to do that. And I think, I think females can do whatever they want if they put their minds to it and, and you don't need, and you don't need to follow the the traditional path if you don't want to if you do great but so yeah I'd, I'd say I'd consider myself a moderate feminist. Shelby thank you we just so appreciate you coming on sharing your experience with us and we just really appreciate the reporting that you have done this year putting yourself right in the center of what is going on so that we can all know what truly is happening so thank you. Thank you. 
Stay tuned because up next, Lauren and I break down the Lifetime Christmas movie, Felice Navi Dad with Mario Lopez and discuss why we all watch Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movies every year, despite them being low budget, cheesy, and predictable. But first, this is the last Problematic Women podcast of 2020. So I want to take a minute to thank you all for your support. You all have left us so many awesome reviews on Apple Podcasts. You've sent us supportive emails and shared your thoughts with us. You've told us your funny quarantine stories on Twitter and responded to our weekly Twitter polls. And we're just so thankful to have you as our Problematic Women podcast audience. We couldn't do this show without you. So if you have not had a chance this year to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, to send us an email with your feedback, we would love to hear from you all. So please, if you have five minutes, just take a minute to do that. It's just great to get your feedback so that we can keep making this show better and better for you. Every time I watch a Hallmark or Lifetime Christmas movie, at some point or at many points during the movie, I wind up asking myself, why am I sitting here watching this? <laughs> and that was exactly what happened on Monday night when I watched the movie Felice Navi Dad <laughs> with Mario Lopez. Uh, this is a Lifetime Christmas movie on Hulu and the premise is, is pretty simple. There's a single dad, Mario Lopez. He lives with his teenage daughter and his sister in a quiet little town. His wife has passed away. There is a lovely career-driven woman that comes home for Christmas to visit her widowed father. And uh, Mario Lopez and this lovely woman, they have several different funny interactions. They finally end up on a date together, sort of in a way by accident, the relationship grows, there's a minor falling out, and then there's, in you know, just a moment, the relationship is restored, and they spend Christmas together with both of their families, and it's beautiful. I I think that pretty much sums it up, Lauren. Did I miss anything? <laughs> you missed everything. <laughs> this movie stars none other than A.C. Slater from Saved by the Bell, who is a, now a high school principal, which... A is amazing. B, the daughter's name is Noel, which oh, I always love when they do that. <laughs> and this movie was it was amazing. I don't know how you didn't like it. I, I absolutely loved it. And my favorite part was the cameo by none other than Sabrina the Teenage Witch herself, Melissa Joan Hart, who was like this crazy crystal lady that he went out on a date with, who like read the crystals and she was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, you're a Scorpio and I'm a Cancer and we, we can't date. And then she left. I, everything about this movie, like, I could not stop watching and enjoying this movie. <laughs> Lauren, it makes me happy that you got so much pleasure out of this movie. <laughs> what the problem that I had with it is, and I, I will disclose, I am definitely more of a Hallmark movie person than I am Lifetime. Um, but to me, Lifetime movies, as this one felt, can feel a little bit uh, like they're trying too hard to be cheesy. Like, you know, Hallmark is cheesy. Like, we just all know that. And like, they just are that. Uh, but it just felt like they were trying too hard. Like, the whole movie opened with this narrative of essentially like, this is the perfect little town. We're all really nice here. We all look out for each other nothing really wrong ever happens here. 
welcome to our town. Yeah, I don't think there was any conflict in this whole movie. Like, the biggest conflict was that they forgot to pick up their gloves from the dry cleaners before they closed, and they didn't have the gloves they needed for their performance. Yeah, that was that was the big problem to this movie. <laughs> but it was it was excellent. And what did AC Slater, Mario Lopez try to do in this movie? He brought them like dishwashing gloves. And no, that didn't work. It was just about <laughs> Which was a creative solution. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean he um, yeah. was just trying his best. Well, and they did have some very like lovely no, I mean, really, the whole movie was about family um, and, you know, the power of looking out for family. And, you know, there was some real messages of, you know, having to work through grief around the holidays and dealing with the pain of remembering, you know, a lost loved one at Christmas time. Uh, but, um, yeah, just I couldn't quite handle some of the thickness of that cheese that they laid on, like. For example, when it started to snow, <laughs> and like no, it was in Arizona on Christmas Eve. Duh. It was like a bright sunny day, and then there's just like snow that I think it actually sparkled, maybe. So you weren't quite sure if it was pixie dust or snow coming down, but you know. Mario Lopez's eyes just sparkling that you were lost in Virginia. <laughs> well, I, I do, I do see the value in these movies. I will say that um, one of uh, my colleagues, Kate Trinko, who's been on this podcast, she sent me this awesome article written by one of her friends, uh, Meg McDonnell over at Verily Magazine. And Meg wrote this great piece about why we watch Hallmark movies. This came out last year. Um, and yeah, why, why are we so invested in these movies? Why do we sit down and watch them when we know what we're getting, whether it's Lifetime, whether it's, you know, a Netflix kind of style-esque uh, Hallmark movie, or whether it is just a Hallmark movie, the thing that we find so intriguing is the fact that it's simple. Like, it simplifies life. We know that it's predictable. Like, we know what's going to happen, and we know that the ending is going to be happy. And there's something so peaceful to that, especially around the holidays when life is crazy and busy and hectic and we're often, you know, coming to the end of a year where you're sort of feeling tribulation of like, oh gosh, maybe I didn't accomplish everything I wanted to this year, but I can just sit down and like watch these nice people fall in love. <laughs> yeah. And I think it goes down to, I mean, in a, on a serious level of what the show is about. I mean, most of the time the these movies are about a high-powered woman who has this great career and might have a relationship in the city and she slows down and she realizes that there's things more important than work and and it is about family and you know I, I think women while even on the show we talk about it a lot I, I don't think they take time to slow down a lot and and learn that lesson themselves and I think there's just something really peaceful about that Virginia to know that and and imagine your kind of perfect life with like a rugged, handsome Christmas tree farmer out in the country with, you know, 2.5 beautiful kids or those on Christmas Eve, but you don't even have to wear a coat. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we all want, right, Lauren? That's that's the dream. That's the dream right there. They even made mollies. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I you're you're absolutely right, Lauren. There is this beautiful simplicity to these movies, and it's nice to take a step back from the craziness. And I think to have a little bit of like our 
our priorities in a way almost put back in check, just like as the world gets a little bit quieter around us. And as we watch like, oh, okay, here's this, you know, sweet family, they're living this simple life, they have their priorities in check. And it's kind of a good, good reminder of our own priorities. My favorite, though, is somehow I'm always home with my folks in the summer, you know, taking a week off in Florida for summer vacation. And it always seems to line up with Christmas in July. Virginia. And this is when Hallmark decides to replay all these movies in the middle of the summer. And my mom and my grandmother, uh, they like these movies more in July than they like them in December. <laughs> well, who doesn't like Christmas in July? We actually, um, my sister and brother-in-law and I were staying in a cabin in September. Um, we did a, a lake trip. And in this whole cabin, there were no movies except for one Hallmark Christmas movie. And like, there was no Wi-Fi at this place. Like we were out in the middle of nowhere and like, it was Sunday night and we we're like, we want to do something, but like, there's nothing really to do. So we ended up watching this Hallmark Christmas movie in September. And I, I will admit it was, it was actually pretty fun. <laughs> excellent. It was excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, we've very sufficiently picked apart the truth behind our love-hate relationship with Hallmark and Lifetime movies. So definitely stay tuned because up next, we will be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. This is Virginia Allen, host of the Daily Signal podcast. I don't know about you, but YouTube is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues you care about most. You can also search for the channel by going to youtube.com slash daily signal. So it is now that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic one of the week. And this week and this time of the year, I always take time to think of my friend and a friend of the show, Bree Payton. For those who might not be aware, Bree was a huge part of starting this show and hosted the show um, for the first couple of years it was on the air. She was a, a light. She was so funny. She was so smart. And she was literally the perfect host. And I think most of the time when we are recording the show, I, if I don't know what to do, I think in my head, like, what would Bree say? What would Bree say? And she's missed. And even two years out, she's still in our hearts. And, you know, I just want to take the time to, to honor her and, and make sure that, that her legacy lives on. Um, she has a lot of really great writings in The Federalist. You can hear her on, on the podcast. But just know this time of year is hard for people. And a lot of people have, have lost mothers and fathers. And I think of the Peyton family, who's just an amazing family out in California, who have an empty seat at their table. I, I can't imagine how hard that is two years later. So just know for those people, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. And, and you are loved. And we hope you have a Merry Christmas. And, and to everyone, just make sure that this year, 
when everybody might not be with their family like normal, or you might be over a Zoom meeting, or maybe you do with your family. Just take the time to remember. I know it's so cheesy, the real reason for the season. Us Christian folks, it's, it's Jesus and, you know, the love that he bestowed. But I, I think all Americans can take time to just love one another and, and remember what's important this year. Because you never know when the last day would be. I mean, I'm thinking the last time I saw Bree, we were, I was in this very seat and I was looking over through this podcast class through her and, you know, unforeseeable tragedy happened just a, cu- a couple weeks later. So just know that that we do value, Virginia just said it in the ad read, we value you so much. Every every life is special. Every life is important. Um, and yeah, so my long-winded rant of making Bree Payton this week's Problematic Woman of the Week. Lauren, thank you. I didn't have the honor or the privilege of knowing Bree very well at all. I, I met her, but I am and have been so touched by the legacy that she left just by seeing how both Kelsey Bowler and yourself have talked about her and um, have really honored her life and her legacy and just the incredible individual who she was and how she loved people so well. So it's definitely only, only right to today. Remember her, the amazing woman that she was and all of the many lives that she impacted. Uh, and just a, yeah, a good reminder for all of us that family is so, so important. Um, and friends are so important. And it's really healthy to slow down and take the time every, more than every year, but certainly this time of year, to just really express our love to others and tell them that they are loved, that they are valued. Um, so thank you, Lauren, for that reminder. Well, if I knew Bree, she wouldn't want us to sit around and be sad. She'd want us to go on with the show. And now it is time for our Twitter poll question for the week. So last week, we asked you all if America were to follow the UK and prohibit medical professionals from treating children with puberty blockers and other sex change hormones, at what age should those drugs be allowed to be prescribed? The majority, 53% of you said age 21, with 36% saying 18 years old. No one voted for age 16, which... I was interested by. So, Lauren, what is our poll for this week? We want to know your level of commitment to Hallmark and Lifetime movies. So, do you willingly watch those cheesy Christmas movies? Number one, I watch them all, including Christmas in July. Number two, might watch a couple. Maybe you're in the mood. Number three, you watch only to make fun. Or number four, nope, I never watch those movies. (laughs) I'm really excited to see the responses from this. (laughs) So that poll is going to be up uh, this morning on my Twitter page. Uh, My handle is Virginia underscore Allen five. So please vote. We want to hear from you guys. Uh, Yeah. Send us, send us a shout out. You can leave a comment. If you have other thoughts, we love to hear from you all. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of problematic women. And you will not be joining us next Thursday because we are taking two weeks off for Christmas, but we will be back with you all at the beginning of the year. But in the meantime, as you're home for Christmas, seeing friends, seeing family, tell them about Problematic Women. Share the show with others and be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. You know, it really does make a difference. Merry Christmas, and we will see you all in the new year. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former 